Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of the Odo Mentor Podcast. We have made it to 2021, and I'm excited to bring you more episodes providing mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All of the opinions and views expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests. Let's get to it. This is Season 3, Episode 2 using subspecialty training in private practice. My guest today is Dr. Douglas Backus. Doug attended medical school at the University of Washington, his otolaryngology residency at Baylor, and then went on to do fellowship in neurotology at the Johns Hopkins University. He is currently practicing at Puget Sound ENT in Edmonds, Washington. Well, thanks for being on the show, Doug. Well, thanks for having me, Christina, and I'm really glad you're doing this. Yeah, so tell me about your career path both how you decided to do otolaryngology and since residency and fellowship? So I would consider myself an accidental doctor. I went to college to play soccer at Seattle Pacific, and my goal was to win a national championship and, frankly, to chase girls like most 18-year-old guys. And I had a mantra, no law, no dentistry, no medicine. I wanted to be in and out in four years. And <laughs> I, went to, I went to college, and I started playing soccer, and that was working great. I was no better at chasing girls than I was in high school, so I had to focus on studies. And I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And I did a survey, just I took a biology class, which was an anatomy and physiology class. I took a business class. I I took some pre-engineering. And I was so good at calculus, actually, that I got to take uh, calculus 101 twice. Uh, (laughs) I got it right the second time and really fell in love with my anatomy class. And at the same time, um, because I had to pay my way through college, I needed to have a work-study job. And so I got a work-study job taking care of an ALS patient. And I would go to his house, and he was a fortunate ALS patient in that it didn't attack his diaphragm early. So he was unfortunate because he was bedridden. And I figured I'd go lift him out of bed, put him in the bathtub, put him on the toilet, I'd feed him, and then I could go study in his kitchen. And that was, you know, two hours a day. And one day he just said, hey, you know, Doug, could you come here? And uh, I came in. He said, why don't we talk? And basically he said, you know, I'm kind of lonely. And I noticed that he was using a pencil in his mouth to dial a touchtone telephone at the time. And he was a veteran and he was raising money for wheelchairs for disabled veterans. And he wanted to raise a thousand wheelchairs before he died. And that really morphed into me having an incredible relationship with a gentleman whose name was Bill Garringer. I was taking uh, renal physiology in Anatomy Phys, and I noticed that his urine was black, and he had just come from the VA from his checkup, and they put him on a diuretic, and he lost consciousness. And I actually called the doctor and said, you know, he's lost consciousness, and his urine's black. I think he's really dehydrated. And that was my breadth of knowledge of physiology from my, you know, freshman anatomy class. And they took him to the hospital and the doctor called me back and he said, we would have killed Bill. Bill came back and he said, you know, it takes a lot to lift an old man on the toilet to help him dial the telephone. Have you ever thought about being a doctor? And I never quite figured out how those points all came together. But at that point, it was through an experience in a work study situation. And Bill became one of my best friends. And one of his biggest moments of pride is when I graduated medical school and then he died. It really was an exploration of what can I do with the talents that I'm trying to figure out that I have 
And how does that align with truly being able to have an impact and move the needle for people who are less fortunate than me with the talents that I have? And what you find out when you do that is it almost feels like you're stealing at the end because you're getting so much more than you're giving. And what I felt for myself, if I could actually find a career path that I could chase those two things together, the talents that I have and the ability to really serve others, then I wouldn't have to worry about job burnout my whole life. And so that's how I got started. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. Thanks for sharing that. After you decided to do otolaryngology after medical school, you decided to do a fellowship in neurotology, but unlike other of your colleagues, you decided to do private practice neurotology versus academics. How did you make that decision? So again, it goes back to personal mission is how I would describe it. So I had some pretty nice job opportunities. I had a job opportunity to stay at Johns Hopkins where I did my fellowship. So I did my residency at Baylor, had really fantastic mentors at Baylor and Herman Jenkins and Newton Coker and Bobby Alford. I went to Johns Hopkins because I really felt I wanted to be an academician. So I was on a Project Center grant with NIH funding, and I had two grants, one from the American Otological Society and one from the American Neurotology Society as career development grants. And so I did vestibular neurophysiology and squirrel monkeys. I did real basic science research, and I loved it. And then I realized that what I loved more was actually treating patients and treating people, people who had problems. And then it became a question of where do I best do that? So my first job actually was at Virginia Mason in Seattle, and that's a multi-specialty group that really had significant motivations to be academically active. So I still wrote papers. I shifted my research to clinical research and then shifted it in 2006 to research really based on building better business models to allow patient access to specialty care. My practice really outgrew Virginia Mason, so I went to Swedish hospitals, so I was a hospital employee. So I went from a multi-specialty group to a hospital-employed position. And frankly, got caught in a situation where the hospital made decisions about hiring a couple of surgeons that created a lot of controversy in our city. And at that point, I said, you know, I'm going to swap comfort for control. And I realized I could still chase the same, I would call them business development research opportunities, building business models to bring people access to care for cochlear implants in particular, and do that in a private practice setting with more control. So I found my way to private practice, and it took me 17 years to figure it out. There's a lot more risk in private practice. You can do anything you want. You just have to pay for it. And when COVID hit and we had 30 employees in our office, we paid them and didn't take a paycheck for five months. So there's some reality to that. And you swap comfort for control. And at the latter part of my career, I really feel that I'm still focused on the mission side, but this is the best way to get it accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. So what does your patient population look like? I mean, are you doing 100% neurotology at this point? Or did you have to do some more general stuff when you first got into private practice just to pay the bills? So one of the things I think anybody seeking a residency or for a fellowship is to really have people you trust that you can talk to. You you need to have mentors. And so I've kept a dialogue with people like Herman Jenkins, with Bruce Gans, who's the chairman at Iowa, Rich Miyamoto, who's just retired from Indiana, Tom Balcony from Miami. 
and Charlie Cummings, who was uh, my chairman at Johns Hopkins when I was there. And I've continued to bounce questions off of them. And one of the pieces of advice I got was if you want to be a neurotologist, just do neurotology, because the minute I start doing primary care otolaryngology, office-based care, or I start doing rhinology, or I start doing pediatrics, then I'm only a ear surgeon. I'm an otolaryngologist with a special interest in ear surgery. And so I never did any general ENT. I take call for the general group and I pass the cases on to my partners unless they're incredibly emergent. And I've only done neurotology. So my practice is 100% neurotology. I do about 420 cases a year and about 150 of those are school-based cases. And I am the neurotologist for the Swedish health system in Seattle. So I'm in private practice with ProLiant surgeons and my my individual practice within that group of practices is called Puget Sound ENT. And I have an office in Puyallup, which is 55 miles south of my primary office in Edmonds and my surgery centers in Seattle. So I've regionalized my practice and I really encourage people to think about when they're starting their practice, who is referring to you. If you are relying on otolaryngologists to send you cases, you can't take cases out of their operating room. You can't violate their practice scope. And so to answer your question very directly, I only do neurotology. It's 100%. And I have a very, very large practice because of that. Okay. So you speaking of call, you said that you take call for a general group. So what is your call like? I'm on call about every fifth night, every fifth weekend, because there's five of us. We're adding two partners so that call burden will go down. We have a pretty busy emergency room. So for a neurotologist taking generally in T-call, my biggest fear is a kid with something in their airway. And so a lot of those folks I'll send down to the children's hospital because they're just better at it. But even some of the general issues, it's amazing how complicated a nosebleed can be if you haven't treated one in 15 years. So I've got (laughs) good partners who can help me out if I get in trouble. But I do cover general call and it, it gets my attention. I'll tell you, it makes me more nervous than operating on an acoustic neuroma with brainstem compression. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, taking call at a tertiary care academic hospital makes me nervous. You know, I'm an, and I'm a generalist, so I do a little bit of of everything. But sometimes, you know, you've got a post-op head and neck disaster coming in, and that makes me nervous too. So on the flip side of that, so what does your typical weekly schedule look like? So on Mondays, I drive down to my Puyallup office. That takes me about an hour from my house. I see about thirty patients down there in a clinic day. Every other Monday, I have the morning in the surgery center there. So I'll do three or four cases and the clinical start about one in the afternoon. Tuesdays is my school-based day. So I'm at Swedish Hospital at the Neuroscience Institute in Seattle. And I do acoustic neuromas, you know, anything school-based related, temporal bone cancers in collaboration with the neurosurgeons and the head and neck surgeons there. Then I have clinic in the afternoon on Tuesdays. So I typically get those cases done in the morning. And I'm in clinic by 1.30. Wednesday is the all-day clinic day. And one of the enjoyments about being in ENT is that you can actually have a good office space practice and have a great surgical practice. We do cool stuff is the bottom line. I call Wednesday my penalty box day, so I don't get to put scrubs on the whole day. And then Thursday is the reward. I'm in the surgery center in Seattle all day. And it's all outpatient surgery done in an ASC. Since I went into private practice, I now take Fridays off. And when I started taking one day off a week, I followed my numbers very closely 
my productivity actually went up about 20%. In some areas, it's gone up 30%. So I'm just much more efficient, and I really enjoy my time off. Do you think the efficiency is why your productivity has gone up, or do you feel like it's also mental wellness? So I think those two things blend together. The efficiency gives me the opportunity to take time off. I have to be disciplined to do that because my personality is not to take time off. And again, if I'm chasing a mission, you can burn yourself out chasing a mission. And I think you have to, in my mind, I have to take time to just recharge the batteries, basically. And for me, that's hanging out with my wife. I've got two Labrador retrievers. I'm trying to play golf. I actually paid a lot of money for some cool golf clubs. Now I just need to know how to hit them. But I do think that work-life balance is built into it. And the efficiency piece lets me be very productive when I'm working. When I'm working, I look like a steam engine on a railroad track. And when I'm not working, I've got sweats and flip-flops on. And, and there's not a lot in between. Yeah. So you alluded to this a little bit about the control but what do you see as the main benefits of practicing in private practice versus an academic position? I really do think it's having the ability to make decisions as a group with my partners. I think that really bodes the importance of choosing your practice well and asking critical questions. I always tell people in residency that I talk to, because I actually have an otology fellowship as well. I have a one-year fellowship people come and take a full year training. They do about 350 to 400 cases when they're with me. And I tell them to really ask critical questions. And if people aren't willing to ask those questions, that's probably not a practice you want to be in. You need to have a working partnership with your partners. When we decide to make a change, when I decided to go to four days a week, that was my decision. I'm just going to make less money. I didn't have to get that cleared by a vice president or a chairman or someone else. So the control piece, to me, gives me a lot of, I would say, open air to breathe. And I wasn't used to it for the first 17 years of my practice. But in those first 17 years of my practice, I was still a really happy guy. I still love what I do. I didn't choose a specialty because of money. I chose a specialty out of pure interest in chasing the anatomy, basically, and chasing a mission that was challenged to me by a guy in a wheelchair. Yeah. And so I go to work every day and I truly mean this. I love it. I enjoy what I do. People are asking me when I'm going to retire because financially at a certain point you can retire. Well, I'm going to retire when it's no longer fun or I'm not effective. And I'll bet you that it's going to be when I just don't feel like I'm doing as good a job because this is ENT and neurotology in particular is really a good time. It's fun. Yeah. But it's also a physical sport, you know? Absolutely. And that's really important, you know? I work out three days a week. I do yoga on Wednesdays. Any dude who doesn't think yoga is a workout hasn't done it. Um, <laughs> and I got to tell you, it, it's great for flexibility. You got to think about ergonomics when you're operating early in your career. One of the things I pound on my fellows about is their position when they're operating so that you don't get neck injuries, you don't get back injuries. And I think your point is very poignant. And that is, I look at being a surgeon as being an athlete and you've got to take care of yourself because if not, you're not going to be as effective a surgeon. You're not going to last as long. How do you stay up to date on CME, evidence-based medicine, innovations, since you're not in an academic hospital? I have an advanced otology fellowship 
Mm-hmm. And every day is a teaching day for me, number one. Number two, as part of that fellowship and part of being just a neurotologist is if someone sends me a case, if a general otolaryngologist sends me a case, what do I need to do for them to make it worth their while? Number one, if if the clusitoma patient they send me needs sinus surgery, it gets done by them, not my partner. That's clear. <laughs> but number two, I surveyed them and asked them and they said, we want to have access to ongoing CME without having to take time off work. So I host a course every year, a otology rhinology course with Greg Davis, a rhinologist in town here. And that's very popular. We bring about 60 people in once a year for our course. Um, I host a Japan lab, which we've done with uh, Steve Cass at Denver with our last Japan lab. And they come every other year from Japan. Our otology fellow is in charge of a every other week. So twice a month, we have a citywide otology conference, which has only gotten better with Zoom actually. We have anywhere from 18 to 100 people on a Tuesday on the Zoom call. We review papers and cases, and we have uh, M&M conferences, and we have skull-based conferences at the hospital. So I'm getting CME nonstop, and as you know, I'm a big fan of the Academy, and -hmm. the Academy has put phenomenal education. You've been a big part of forming a lot of that education that really, if you're not growing in your ability to take care of patients, you're just not logging on because there's a lot of great information there. So I think that like anything else in life, you get out of it what you put into it. The other pieces that I found very important is getting involved in academy level issues such as leadership. I'm on the 3P committee. I'm, I'm helping to understand how we get paid, how we lobby Congress, all those components are big pieces of education people don't think about. At a certain point, what are we doing to really diversify our specialty so that women feel not only welcome, but excited to be there? That's very important to me. Number two, underrepresented minorities in otolaryngology. That is something that's very important to me. And it's very important to me and even how I pick fellows. Otolaryngology is a specialty that has got office. It's got the OR. Both of those are interesting. It's not like we tolerate the office to go to the OR. Cases are interesting. But we also have the ability to interact with specialists from all different fields, pediatricians, internists, neurosurgeons, general surgeons. And if you really look at the medical world, we're nice people. So there's a lot of otolaryngologists. Carol Bradford is the dean of medicine at Ohio State. Cliff McGearing is CEO of the Cleveland Health System. You know, I can go down the list. David Callender has been a career executive after being a top-line head and neck surgeon at MD Anderson. Dave is now running UTMB in Galveston as the CEO. And the reason otolaryngologists rise to the top is because in our field, we have to be able to get along with everybody. And we do. And so otolaryngology overall, regardless of your fellowship, like let's say that you're really interested in business or you're really interested in leadership. I think it empowers people to be able to excel in all those different areas. And I still am, I'm on the board of the American Academy of Laryngology. I have one year left and I've really enjoyed every minute of it. And before that, I've been teaching instruction courses. I've been involved in committees. I've been a committee chairman and now I've moved on to 3P. So part of my job now is who's going to do that when I decide to retire in 10 years. And are we really building people that are excited about our specialty in neurotology, but also in otolaryngology so that 
the legacy goes on because our legacy is pretty cool. We've been at it 125 years. And if you really go through the history, about every five years, we've done something to make it even better. Yeah. Tell me more about that position because you're, like you said, director at large on the board of directors. What have you learned while you've been doing that? What kind of things have you been involved in? So the first thing is, I think otolaryngology is a field that really is primarily people you want to hang around. They're good folks. I mean, we come to the table with problems identified and we sit there and really try to hash out how to solve them. We are really working hard to protect the specialty, to protect the scope of practice of the specialty. I think we are sincerely committed to diversity in our academy. And I always tell people the money's where your mouth is, where you're writing your checks, where you volunteer in your time, and what does your office look like? Okay, we've got evidence right in front of us of what we're doing. So our board has diversified significantly, uh, but not only at the board level, but at all of the coordinator levels, all the people that determine what papers get accepted to the meeting, women in otolaryngology, you know, for specialties, you know, we've had four women, I believe now, as presidents of the academy. Dwayne Taylor just finished as the president of the academy, and he's an African-American. And he's very well respected in the academy. And he got the job because he was the best guy for the job. That's kind of a whole new level. And so I think the academy board position really does have influence and impact. And I've served on several other boards that I've withdrawn from because it was a token position and they wanted my donations. If that's the case, I'll write you a check. But I'm not going to tithe you my time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tithe you my time in a venue where I think we can move the needle together and I can contribute. And I think that's what the Academy Board has empowered me to be able to do. Looking back at your career, what are some lessons that you had to learn the hard way? I trust everybody. And (laughs) I've been burned a few times. And I think one of the things I've had to learn, particularly through my experience in going through a difficult time with one of my jobs during my career path, is to be a little bit smarter you know, in my mind, everybody has an A when they start the class. If you earn a C, that's your fault. I start everybody to B plus now. And so I think there's some realities, particularly in private practice, where you can be caught in traps. I also have learned that it's way too easy as an academic physician or as an employee physician to just sit and bitch. Okay. You need to sit and solve. And I need to be positioning myself with enough trust in the people around me that when I make a suggestion, they believe it's sincere. And if I'm not making a sincere suggestion, I need to not say anything. And if I'm saying something that's just to benefit me, I need to also lay that disclaimer out. So I think a lot of it for me has been to choose partners well and to really sink my time into areas that I can actually have an impact so that it's worth my time and it's worth the group's time that I'm working with. So I think I already know the answer to this question because you've said it several times in different ways, but it sounds like you would choose to do otolaryngology again. So I'm going to change the script a little bit on the question. If one of your kids, I know your kids are grown now, but if one of them came to you and said, I want to be an otolaryngologist, what would you tell them? So my first question would be, is it really what you want to do? You know, I am the only physician in my entire family line going back to the Middle Ages. 
And my dad said, that's great, Doug. My dad was an auto mechanic. He said, I have no idea how to help you, but I can help you with groceries, you know? So if it was my kid's passion and they weren't doing it just to please me, I'd be completely supportive. When you look at all of the specialties in medicine and the ability to have work-life balance, the ability to really take care of yourself, I think otolaryngology is a great place to be. You know, I work in a company where we've got people with multiple different surgical specialties. And some of these specialties just have personalities that are harder to deal with. It's not that they can't be dealt with, but you can start at a baseline of most people at the table wanting to be there to create a change when you're talking to an otolaryngologist. So I would encourage them if that's what they wanted to do. But also, I'm very aware that I cast a big shadow on my kids, no matter how much I want to deny it. And I don't want them doing things to please me. Yeah, absolutely. What else do you want to add? For everybody listening, I think that, you know, Christina's doing a great thing here. Actually, Dr. Cabrera Muffley is doing a good thing here. Um, and she is a very respected colleague of mine. And I enjoy my conversations with her. And I hope you enjoy her podcast. I'll wear the t-shirt. ENT's cool. <laughs> totally agree. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, have a great day. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, give it five stars and leave a review. Okay, let's dance.